this practice that we are engaged in here of exploring what it means to be awake exploring what it means for ourselves to deepen in our understanding of what it means to be alive to be a human being this is something that we probably acknowledge we probably know of as challenging us in many different ways it's uh, sometimes the case when we think about coming on retreat we have a sort of a sort of a, a thought or a memory about the the kind of nice experience we had some other retreat and we think oh yeah I'll go and have that for two weeks or a month or a few days or whatever it might be and it's in a way a, a useful form of selective memory because it gets us back to to the retreat when if we remembered some of the uh, the more challenging elements of it as the predominant sort of image or association we might find ourselves less likely to turn up and yet even if we are in touch with the fact that it's challenging that it's difficult at times even if that was something we were well aware of and bringing ourselves back and of course it's not just bringing ourselves back to retreat um, to come for a period of time as you all have it's equally the sense of bringing ourselves back to come and sit on the cushion in the meditation hall and arriving in this space which we are exposed very directly to to life and equally bring ourselves back in any given moment where we make the choice where we follow through with the intention to really meet what's here in that there's something that we're honoring of this precious opportunity that we have to to practice here that even though it might at times be challenging for us we might be well aware that that's what we're we could say getting ourselves into we understand that there's something really important here that is worthy of this engagement with the challenge and with the demands of of what practice calls from us and calls of us asks of us so there can be that sort of enthusiasm that passion also that says yes i really want i'm really here for this but what we can also notice sometimes over the course of days or weeks is that there's a sort of a a pull and sometimes a gentle quiet pull but sometimes rather more strongly we experience the sense of well you know it would be rather nice if things would just calm down if it could be just a little quiet and smooth and possibly even a little you know plain sailing maybe would be rather you know what i need or and of course such times might arise but there's a way in which i've certainly noticed for my own mind and in many conversations with with practitioners such as yourselves what we can sometimes start to lean in towards is a certain sort of this will do this isn't too bad yeah this is okay maybe we can just kind of hang out here maybe i can just 
kind of have a nice time in this condition from here on in. After some days, things settle down. We, we find ourselves more able to be present, more able to deal with the ups and downs of our inner experience. It's not the experience that everyone has every time, of course, but often. And there's some sense of subtle complacency that can slip in. So, so as and when we've been practicing for some time, it's really important on occasion to to really bring forth or reconnect with a sense of our aspiration, our intention for what it is that most moves us, that, that brings us to be here, or that brings us back here again and again into Guy House, into this hall, into this moment. What what is that that calls us? That perhaps speaks of of transformation of possibilities as yet unfulfilled of of peace, of freedom of a boundlessness of heart that we sense and recognise as the potential of our life as human beings the sense of wanting to deepen our practice Sometimes arises. We kind of, yeah, we're doing what we're doing. We understand the form. We're working with the tools. Have a good sort of basic framework of the teachings. Well, that's great. Wonderful. And yet sometimes what really makes the difference is just stepping outside of the comfortable territory that we start to map out. One of the reasons that early retreats are often so profound and transformative is we don't yet know how to keep ourselves comfortable in them. And if we've sometimes wondered why those amazing things that happened early on don't seem to happen so much later, it's not, again, that that's always the way it is. It can equally happen the other way around. Early retreats can just not seem to be much happening. Later retreats, lots of opening. There's no blueprint I'm suggesting here. But often we kind of learn how to get a bit comfortable on retreat. And it's really worth, without making some kind of a value in itself of being uncomfortable, because there's certainly no sort of reason to pursue that as an experience, but to just look where we start to get a little comfortable. One of my teachers would say when asked, um, you know, how do I deepen my practice, he would say, eat less, sleep less, practice more. And kind of interesting, really. You know, the Buddha often reflected on our relationship to eating and sleeping as places in which we we gain a lot of comfort. And he said, for those who are attached to these experiences as well as sort of social conversation, this this path will be challenging, he said. If we we like a lot of sleep, if we like a lot of food, if we like a lot of chatting. Now, of course, chatting is pretty minimal here, but food and sleep are, you know, there's plenty of it available, though, with regard to food and for some people with sleep not always when we want it but the opportunity is here and what is it to kind of have that sense of ardency of enthusiasm of yeah I'm willing to just try something a little different sometimes so this is really just a a suggestion that if you feel and you might not feel this if you feel that there's you know a certain just kind of cruising going on in a certain way for you We have to be honest with ourselves. It may or may not be so. But if that does seem to be so, and you're interested, you have the interest to just explore a little more. Sometimes the renunciant elements of practice, just having a little less sleep, seeing what it's like. Maybe you'll be tired the next day, but 
That's okay. Or a little less food. Maybe one will be hungry later. Sure, but that's okay. There'll be another meal turn up in a few hours. You know? And just just facing ourselves in those places can be very interesting. Maybe for others it's to do with body and challenges with our body and not just our body but our self-images that arise or our views of how our body should be. So for some, you know, it might be a real worthy undertaking to say because we're reasonably clear that the discomforts or the itches and irritations that arise in sitting aren't really to do with anything that's threatening our health and well-being or our bodily um, integrity, to just say, okay, I'm going to not move for a whole sitting. To make the undertaking, to say, I will stay here. I won't itch the scratch. I won't wriggle with the agitation or the restlessness. I'll just sit here and see what happens. Just sometimes making that kind of a, a clear intention just for a sitting. Or maybe even just for part of a sitting. If one's noticing there's a certain habit of sort of just always a bit casual. Being a bit casual about things like, oh, so it can't hurt to scratch my cheek. It doesn't harm, you're right. But there's something we might learn in not doing it. And that's really where the interest can come. For another person, of course, it might be quite the opposite. And we might have been sitting here stoically and have not moved ever in our sitting. And we expect that a few people have noticed as well, probably. <laughs> so we don't want to disappoint them now that we're the representative of, you know, absolute steadiness and posture. And what would it be like to halfway through a sitting, pick your foot up and move it around or change your posture or stand up? And maybe somebody might notice that happening. But that's their practice and what they would do with it is theirs, not yours. Notice how we can start to limit what's possible for us very quickly on the ideas of what should be, what must be, or what other people will think about what happens here. And again, it's it's an invitation just to play a little bit or to explore a little bit. It's not that one needs to suddenly decide, okay, I'll move around in the sitting to see what that's like because I've never done it. But more, if you notice you're not moving because it's somehow maintaining an image of I should be able to, or, you know, I'm not going to move. That doesn't actually have a dynamic aliveness to it that's become a position that we've solidified into. It can be really useful to just explore those kind of things a little and see what it brings. And most fundamentally in this context, what it's really helpful to be just aware of the possibility of and alert to noticing if it's going on, is the way in which we tend to use our practice as a subtle reenactment of the patterns of a life. And this happens pretty much to everyone, as far as I know. We start to as we start to know how the practice works a bit more and how the form works, we start to use it to somehow reenact like I'm the one who can do it. And so we get busy doing it. And we expect to succeed. Or we might, of course, reenact the pattern of imagining we can't do it. And therefore we find a way to make sure that happens, at least in our perception. And pervasive throughout this is really a, 
a tendency we have to try and get comfortable, to try and get safety, to try and feel unimpacted, unimpinged upon by what's going on, so that we don't need to be affected by what is around us. Whether it's through gaining and avoiding or success and failure, through particular ways we practice, even just trying to get the mind to be really calm and quiet and peaceful so it just doesn't bother me anymore, it can, that can be a very helpful and skillful development of mental capacity and training and it can be a moving away from the dynamic aliveness of, of our practice into a, oh, that's where it's going to be comfortable for me. That's the place where I can just, in a way, have a quiet snooze. Because really... What the, the pull of heart and mind towards comfort and towards security is all about is that we don't have to be awake. We don't have to be present in that. We don't have to really be engaged. And it somehow seems like it would be a really nice and probably well-deserved holiday after the hard work of our lives or our practice. And we probably don't think the thought quite that sort of obviously or in that grosser form. And yet the pull... Well, I don't know if it's there for you, but you could look and see. Check it out. Maybe, maybe not. But it's certainly worth acknowledging the the reality of the human condition, this powerful drive, this pull for security. To feel safe, to feel unimpinged upon, to be able to control how we are affected. And, of course, you know, we can't. We know that. We see that. And the Dharma teachings point this out again and again. We can't control how we are affected by experience. And yet, we nonetheless continue, most of us it seems, in different ways to try and do that to try and maintain a quality of experience in which we feel comfortable, safe. And there's nothing, again, I'm not suggesting that safety is inappropriate. There's a level of safety which is actually really important for us all. And there can be a sense of safety in terms of the world and uh, physical boundaries and such things that that are really important for us to be able to maintain and protect in, in such situations. But it's more the kind of inner sense of security that the the mind tries to create in the face of a condition of life in which that's not really what's happening. So what we can recognize, what we can notice is that there's a, a way in which we're impinged upon. The way in which a way in which life affects us. This is part of what it means to be human. We are affected. This heart, this mind, this body is affected. Is affected. And in that in that being affected, we're not always at ease. We're not always comfortable with the, the vulnerability of the situation, the fact that we are exposed in this way. And we're incredibly sensitive. We've got this incredibly sensitive system. The physiology and the psychology is, is really tuned in to these impacts, to the sense of, oh, what's happening here? I mean, one little sound sometimes can just 
jangle. I don't know if you've, you've had the experience. You know, sometimes as we get quieter, we realise more and more just how sensitive we are, how a sound can just go right through the whole sense of our mind and body. We just feel touched, impacted by it, if it's loud or sudden. Or, or sometimes just a, a slightly irritating noise, maybe one of the rooks out in the tree. So, and it's sort of like it just really annoys us. And we know it's not that annoying, it's not such a big issue. But something in us is really irritated by it. It's like somehow our sensitivity gets impacted in different ways. And that, you know, this body, it's only comfortable between, you know, in centigrade temperatures between about um, Celsius, you know, from about 17 or 18 to 24, 25. That's kind of comfortable. Anything less than that, it starts to feel cool, and more than that, it starts to feel hot. You know, we're really sensitive in that way. And of course, in the very core of our body, you know, we've just got a few degrees either way of 37. That it's actually possible to live. The system is so sensitive. This physical construct, this physical organism. And that's just temperature that affects us so much. Equally emotionally. Psychologically, we're so sensitive, we can be affected so much. The human experience is, is universal in that regard. There's a, there's a great story I like to, I like to tell um, in this context of, a, of an old um, samurai warrior who lived in the Middle Ages and uh, was walking down the road, down the dusty road one day, contemplating important questions of life and death and meaning. And as he was walking along, he, he, he came across a small and wizened old Zen monk sitting cross-legged at a crossroads. And he came up to the monk and he said, mm, Monk, you're a holy man. Can you tell me the difference between heaven and hell? And the little monk looked up at the big samurai and he said, Samurai, your robes are dirty. Your hair is unwashed. Your sword is rusty. And you smell bad. Samurai, you are a disgrace to your noble order. Why should I speak to you? And the samurai, a proud warrior as he was, pulled out a sword. This insolent little pipsqueak is not going to insult me like that and get away with it, he thought. And as he was poised to strike and take the little monk's head off with one blow, the monk looked up at him and said, that's hell. And suddenly the samurai realized, oh my gosh, yeah, he understood. Here he was, so insulted, so affected by a few words, apparently insulting words, that he was willing to kill this innocent and harmless Holy man, completely in breach of all of his vows and his, his sort of sense of spiritual warriorship. And he was filled with gratitude and appreciation for this little monk and just so happy for the way he'd risked his very life to teach, teach him this lesson. And he was beaming down just full of love and appreciation and didn't quite have words to say. And the monk looked at him and says, that's heaven. 
And I find the story quite amusing and delightful in lots of ways. But what it also speaks to is, you know, how affected we are. One harsh word, and our inner life can crumble. One kind word, or generous act, and we can feel uplifted, filled with delight and joy. To really take to heart the truth of this reality, this sensitivity, this vulnerability, this way in which we are affected by life. This world that is not in our control, that impinges upon us, on our tender, sensitive system, on our consciousness, heart, mind and body. And what often happens, what we do in response to that, is we get really busy. We find ourselves engaging in activity to try and control, to try and somehow create a bubble in which we don't have to feel, in which we're not exposed to that reality, to that vulnerability, to that sensitivity, to that impact ability that is inherent in being human. And so we keep ourselves busy trying to organize experience or when we become a little bit more refined and spiritually oriented rather than trying to organize experience we start to more try and organize our mind and our body particularly our mind and our emotional process and our thoughts to make them somehow be comfortable somehow be a place where we feel safe And it can really be something that takes up so much of our time, so much of our energy, so much engagement with the process of trying to get comfortable to feel safe. I had a a very interesting experience with regard to this. Myself, at one time I was teaching a retreat in the uh, foothills of the Pyrenees in France and uh, we were camping out on a hill practicing At one point while I was uh, reflecting on what to talk about that evening, I uh, was sitting there and this fly came along and landed and bit me. And It was like, ouch, it was quite a bite. I I hadn't really met this kind of a creature before. Um, And where it bit me, I I just brushed it off, but where it bit me there was like a, a, a drop of blood started running. It was like it was a serious injury in one sense. It was like, oh my gosh, this thing is hungry, it's got teeth. Um, so I brushed it off. And then it just flew around and tried to land somewhere else. And I brushed it off and I brushed it off and I brushed it off. And of course I didn't want to hurt it because I was, you know, I, I have a real sense of the, the, the real meaning and importance of the precepts, particularly in regard to small creatures. And, and this, but I was getting agitated and I was getting frustrated and I was getting irritated and upset. And it was like, go away. You know, like in my mind, mm, go away. And this thing would not go away. And I could see the urge to want to flick it off a bit harder. You know, like, then it'll get the... You know, I'm not just moving, I'm going to... Boof! And, and, and feeling that, that energy coming in my body. And then the sense of, you know, I could, I could almost imagine, yeah, I, could, I could squash that fella, that little creature. And just feeling that and seeing what was happening to me and, and that I was getting angry, I was getting frustrated, I was almost losing control, it felt like, of my physical urge to to destroy this creature, I thought, okay, this, this isn't working, this isn't working. Just stop. 
let it land and see what happens. So I let it land, and it landed. And there's that moment of sharp, which is what I felt every time it landed before I brushed off. Just, but then there wasn't anything else. It was just that. And it was more the sense of seeing the creature there, you know, feeding on me, essentially. And the unease with allowing that to happen, the sort of the sense of insult and being eaten by a small creature at some level. That was actually the only issue from there on. Oh, it was amazing. I sat there and watched it for a minute or two or three. And then at some point it flew away. I felt so much calmer at the end. The effort to try and not be impacted by it is actually what had caused most of the agitation. The incessant attempt to defend against being impacted, that was actually the source of the agitation, the distress, the anger, and the potential violence. And something about allowing ourselves to be affected, to be impacted, in situations like this, can be very interesting. Now, again, I'm not saying in that that one doesn't need to, at times, appropriately say when one is being hurt or harmed in a situation where that's not appropriate, to say no. And I'm not talking about that kind of situation here. It's more like when something is, in a way, buzzing around and it's not really going to do us any harm, but we nonetheless don't quite let the experience in. So, at one level, we we seek safety and security by trying to not be impinged upon, by not being impinged upon by experience. We'd really rather, at least some of the time, have that not happen, it seems. And this is is common. This is pretty much universal. At a, a more inner level, the way that tends to play out is in seeking a sense of security, a sense of knowing how things are and, more importantly, how things will be with regard to the future. A sense of certainty and security about the future. We see, I'm sure, all of, all of us know well the tendency of the mind to move towards the future, to pull into those stories and those scenarios and the attempt to somehow work out what's going to happen or how to make what we wish to happen come about and how to prevent that which we don't wish to happen from coming about. That exerts an incredible pull in the mind at times for most of us in practice in this, you know, this regular injunction to come back to the present, to, to be here now, really arising because of that pull into the future so much of the time. As well as, of course, the way we tend to pull into the past, be drawn into the past. Though often what we're looking for in the past is the answers to how things happened or didn't happen that we can then apply in the future to try and make sure it's okay to predict and control our experience. So in that way, the whole movement into past and into future is very much associated with trying to create a sense of certainty, of security, of safety, in which, at a psychological level, we feel protected, we feel safe, we feel like we won't be impacted by that which we don't want to be impacted by. Or at least, if we are going to be, we'll know it's coming and we'll be ready for it in that way. And there's a certain sense of a sort of a, a protectedness that that suggests. 
So it's interesting, it's useful to reflect if we notice the sense of looking for that in any way or form. Sometimes just to know that I'm doing it right. I'm doing my practice right. This is the right practice for me at this time. We want to know that, as if there was some absolute around that, which for the most case there isn't. There are many possibilities of what could be useful in many ways in which they may be slightly less so. And the only way we really ever get to know that is by exploring directly, experientially, seeing what happens. That sense of wanting to know what's right or what's going to work in terms of practice. It's often part of that search for security, for security through certainty, through knowing. And yet, if we really consider, if we reflect upon what it is that we know, for sure, for sure, for certain, absolutely. Very, very few things come into that category. Almost nothing is known for certain that we can really be sure about, absolutely. In fact, the only thing we really know for sure is that one day this existence will end. What we've called this life will end in death. And we don't know when that will happen. There's nothing else that's absolutely for sure. Almost nothing else that you can point to. And lots of things are quite regular and quite reliable and most likely will happen, that's for sure. But in terms of certainty, real certainty, that's about as far as it goes. And you know, it's really interesting. I find this fascinating. We look for certainty, to provide some kind of protection from the sense of vulnerability and out-of-controlness of life. And yet, in the end, the only thing that's really certain, i.e. that we're going to die and we don't know when, does that provide that security? Does it give that sense of it? Mostly not. Quite the opposite. In fact, the only real certainty available to us confronts us directly with that vulnerability, with that out-of-controlness of life with the way things are. And so, you know, the Buddha invited us to reflect on, and on a daily basis, not just now and then, to reflect on this reality, to see. You know, only death is certain, and the time of death is uncertain. It's the way it's phrased in one Zen tradition. Well, the, the, the Buddha and the translation of the Buddha's words, it's more like, I have not gone beyond death. This body is subject to death and decay. This I will not escape. This kind of reflection, what's it like to, to feel into this? What's it like to let that in? Because for me, the sense of that is it brings a brightness of interest. It kind of gives some perspective on the the day-to-day discomforts and disappointments and embarrassments of life, of which there are many. It's like it gives some perspective around that. Perhaps it speaks to us. Perhaps it speaks to you as it speaks to me of of something very open and ungraspable, that the the heart and the mind just 
respond to with a sense of, what's this about then? This life that can end and will end, but at some time unknown. We can't escape the vulnerability of this condition. That's really not a realistic option. And so, can we enter into it wholeheartedly? Can we allow ourselves to really be touched by it? To not shy away from its effect, from its impact in heart and mind. And what is it to live with this truth for us? (coughs) Helen Keller, who was deaf and blind and yet lived a remarkable life, she once said, Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, and nor do the children of man as a whole experience it. In the long run, avoiding danger is no safer than outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure, or it is nothing. Remarkable words. Remarkable woman. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. And so if we to see, uh, to see and to take our practice and this opportunity here as that Adventure, that opportunity to go beyond the the self-imposed limits we place around our life in order to somehow create some sense of security, some sense of safety. If we're to go beyond that, we have to face this question, this reality in a sense that our struggle with vulnerability is is founded on, our, our resistance to the way things are is often founded on the fear of death, the wish to either continue our existence or we might be a little bit more sort of confident about death itself and it's more the, the bit beforehand that we're not so happy with. And we, you know, was it Woody Allen, I think, who said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. It's actually quite a good teaching when it comes down to it. But that sense of wanting to avoid, and yet we can't. I was reflecting on this with um, someone in, in interviews the other day. And this whole system is wired up to keep going. 
Its whole body and mind has got so much programming, physiologically and psychologically, to keep itself going. And the reality is that it ultimately will fail at that. It will. It won't keep itself going. This thing can't. It'll go for a while, hopefully for a good while yet. But we don't know. And every day, for people who thought it was going to be going that day, it's stopped. People who thought they would be here today aren't here. And it will be the same tomorrow. And all of us who think that we'll be here tomorrow, we actually don't know for sure. To let your heart and mind be affected by this. What's that like? Because if this whole system, although it's wired up to stay alive or keep going as long as possible, and the end isn't going to, Perhaps keeping it going isn't really the ultimate point of being here. Otherwise, we'd be bound to fail. And so the whole movement of trying to stay comfortable, trying to stay safe, trying to maintain a sense of security or certainty or invulnerability, that likewise is a somewhat misguided orientation for life and certainly for practice. What's it like for us? What's it like for you to contemplate letting that go? Not letting go of the appropriate taking care of physical, emotional well-being. Not letting go of the uh, appropriate supporting our, our physical life and our emotional life. But not doing so as an expression of the endeavour to not be impacted. Because ultimately it is that vulnerability, that capacity which we have to be impacted, which is revealing something more profoundly true even than the reality of this body's temporary-ness, this body's journey from birth to death. The very vulnerability, that impactful impactability of this existence, the way in which what we are is profoundly permeable, cannot be made into something which is not affected. This is speaking to us. This is telling us something. So that insofar as practice or insofar as our engagement in life is about keeping distant from that openness, that vulnerability, that sensitivity, that 
capacity to be affected, we also keep ourselves distance from what that capacity, that reality is is revealing to us. We also keep ourselves distant from that. So I invite you to make friends with and be curious about this very condition of vulnerability. This very condition in which we are not in control. And the very sense of self that seeks to be so, seeks to be in control, seeks certainty. And in that seeking, loses touch with the profound interconnectedness of all things that is very much at the heart of our vulnerability, our ability to be affected, our inability to not be affected, is ultimately because we are not and cannot be separate from all that is around us. We arise in relationship to everything not independent from it. So don't put off this inquiry until later. Don't leave it too late to ask the real questions. We may have ideas about death, scientific ideas that, you know, basically it's all just uh, biological mechanics and when the machine stops, that's it, it's all over. There's nothing beyond death, some will tell you. And there's others, of course, mostly of a religious persuasion who will attempt to convince you that there is, after death, the next birth or heaven or hell or whatever else. And those ideas are equally fantastical in a certain way. Equally, we don't know. And the materialists will sometimes say, oh, it's just consolation to think of something beyond death, trying to make yourself feel better. And one could equally say to the sort of scientific rationalist position, well, saying there's nothing after death, that looks like pretty good consolation as well. Get to get away with everything you did in your life. The truth is we don't know. We do not know. And if we trust that truth and allow ourselves to enter into, abide in it more deeply, it has so much to offer, to reveal. All our beliefs in death, what it is or what it isn't, and the whole relationship we have to security, to safety, to vulnerability that tend to come out of that, All our views and our beliefs tend to come from some identification with that which dies or that which continues after death. Some belief that this is what we are. 
And while indeed all of this is an expression of that, is not apart from that, we cannot take any of this as ultimately what we are. That which is born, that which dies, is that which born and that which dies. But that's not all that the Dharma teachings are pointing to. That's not all that's happening right here, in this moment and every moment. So can we be interested, can we be curious about this? Freedom. Is that close? So let's sit quietly together for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.